Welcome back, Bridge Builder family, to another installment of Wednesday Night Lights. And we are continuing on in our series called Killing Sin. Killing Sin. And we are currently in week number five of our series. But I'd like to review briefly um, the previous four weeks up until this point. Week number one, we talked about how the real tragedy with sin is that most people don't even realize that they have a problem with sin, much less the desire to even fight it. The real problem in our world is indwelling sin. And every single individual who's ever lived and never will live. That's the real problem. But the real tragedy is that people do not fight against sin. They don't realize that their real battle is against indwelling sin. Week number two, we talked about how this fight against sin is absolutely impossible, apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that led into week three. Who or what makes victory possible? And the only thing that makes victory possible, or the only person, rather, that makes victory possible, is the Holy Spirit indwelling you, to helping you, uh, to help you, Put to death misdeeds of the body and fight and hate your sin and have victory against it. And last week we talked about when sin is left untamed. When sin is left untamed. And if you're not actively killing your sin, it will overrun your spiritual garden, so to speak, just like weeds will. It will consume your, your plant or your crop or your flower. It will kill you, just like it's killed John Mayer, we looked at him as an example last week. He can't even maintain a relationship with a woman because he's so entrenched in pornography. And he's gone on record to say that he enjoys pornographic images more than he enjoys intimacy with actual women in real life. Because his sin has so much consumed him, it's taken over his life. And that's what will happen to each and every one of us if we are not constantly putting to death the misdeeds of the body day in and day out. So that leads us into this week's message called Trace the Serpent. Trace the Serpent. I'm going to talk about what the specific phrase, trace the serpent, actually means uh, later on in this message. But it's a phrase that John Owen himself employs and that he uses throughout the book. Or actually, he, does, he just uses it once. He just throws it out as kind of a, a, a phrase in passing that caught my eye. Trace the serpent. And we're basing a whole message off of just that one phrase that he used in this book. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, I would like to begin with an illustration. Though you would not know it now, I used to be a college football athlete. Now I am a washed-up Division III college football track athlete. But at one time, I did used to play college football by God's grace. And every single Monday that we would come in for our team meeting during the football season, our football coaches would have a scouting report prepared for us on that week's opponents that we would be facing that weekend. So on November 28, 2015, we were playing UW-Whitewater in the second round of the playoffs. We would lose that battle um, that Saturday. But you cannot say that we were not well prepared for that battle that was going to occur on November 28th, 2015. Because the coaches had prepared us with a scouting report. They had done their homework on the opponent. And this is a very thorough scouting report. This is not a Mickey Mouse scouting report. And you can tell by just how thorough this report is by just a passing glance at it. And maybe you can't see this from uh, the YouTube video here, but it's got every single player on their offensive roster that we would be facing that week on the scouting report. It's got their numbers, their names, even their hometowns, and their statistics for that season, if they were all-conference or if they weren't all-conference or whatnot, how many catches, how many yards they had, how many touchdowns they caught, or how many interceptions they threw. All of this was on this scouting report, and it was usually up to the graduate assistant or the GA to do the grunt work of putting together all of this information. It was not the fun homework to be doing. But somebody had to do it because we had to be well prepared for the battle that would be taking place that coming Saturday. 
And my assignment for that coming Saturday was uh, to guard number nine, Joe Worth, a really good receiver. And I had to know all of his routes. I had to watch film on him and study his releases off the line of the scrimmage and his favorite route concepts, how quickly he got out of his breaks. And I had to be ready for this opponent that we'd be facing on that Saturday. Now, just like we had a very real football enemy that we'd be, placed, that we'd be facing week in and week out, we also have a very real spiritual enemy that we are facing day in and day out. And he never takes a break. This is not a once a season kind of thing when you're playing whitewater. This is an every single day battle that we are engaged in. And this enemy's name is Satan, or the serpent, as the book of Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 calls him. It says this, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So just from that brief first half of the verse, we learn a couple things here. That the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, and the person who leads the whole world astray, they are all the same person. The same serpent that led Adam and Eve astray in the garden is the same enemy that we are fighting day in and day out in our own spiritual life. It's the same person. The root of all evil. The manifestation of what pure evil looks like is the devil himself, or the serpent himself, or the great dragon, or the deceiver of the whole world. In the book of 1 John, and John also wrote the book of Revelation, John talks about in his first letter, 1 John, he says that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. The whole world lies under the control of the serpent, of Satan, of the dragon. Because of our sin, God has allowed us to be enslaved to our sin, and to be enslaved to that, to that serpent. And God has to rescue us. And Jesus comes down and he dies and pays the penalty for us. And God frees us from the clutches of Satan. Jesus did not owe Satan anything. God did not owe Satan anything. Jesus had to appease God. His sacrifice had to appease God so that we could be rescued from Satan. Satan's just his old jockey. <laughs> Satan is God's Satan. He's not in ultimate control here. But he is in secondary control. And we are held captive to Satan and to our own flesh because God has allowed us to be held captive to Satan and to our own flesh. So this is the same enemy that we're facing today. But the good news is, in the second half of verse 9, it says this, He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Talking about in the last of days here, in the end times, Satan will be defeated. We will stomp on his head with our heels from an eternal perspective. We will defeat Satan because we have faith in Christ. Christ will put him to shame and put him to death and cast him into the eternal lake of fire with him and his demons. We will win. He is powerful now. And he leads the whole world astray. And he will be taking the whole world who doesn't know Christ astray with him to be with him forever and ever in eternal judgment. But he will ultimately be thrown down, and all of his angels and demons and followers with him. Christians will win, because Christ will win. But we do have a very real enemy in the meantime. And he does have very real power in the meantime, because God has permitted that he have very real power in the meantime. So not only do we have an enemy, but in order to defeat this enemy, we must trace him out. We must formulate a scouting report, a battle plan. 
in regards to how to defeat this enemy because he is very real and he is very powerful. And apart from God's grace, he is more powerful than us. And we need God's help. And we need to strategize in order to defeat him. Just like you can see a Satan's, excuse me, just like you can see a serpent or Satan's trail when the snake crawls along the ground or crawls in the sand. You can see where it was headed or where it was in the past. So also we can trace out our enemy's past. We can get a scouting report on him from scripture so that we can go and defeat him every single day of our life. That's why it's different than going out and playing just on one Saturday. We can scout out the devil so that we can defeat him every single day that we are in this body. So we must trace him out in order to defeat him. And praise God that we have a full scouting report of Satan in Scripture. But Satan is not our only enemy, like we've been talking about. Just like we've been talking, this is the theme of the entire series. Satan is not our only enemy. But sin, indwelling sin, as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, our first grandparents, if you will, our first parents. Sin is now our true enemy, and Satan would have no hold over us if it wasn't for the sin that was already within us. Satan never has to force us to do anything that we don't want to do. He merely plays off the inclinations and the wants within us that we already want to do. That's the only reason that Satan has power. He just plays off of our own instincts and our own flesh that's already present within us. But he's never forced us to sin. We want to sin. And that's what Satan plays off of. So Satan is an enemy. But sin is our true enemy. And that's what we have to trace out. And in effect, we are tracing out Satan and his machinations, machinations as well. So I'd like to look at one story from Scripture here. It's from Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. And it's a story of the first murder in world history. And it's the murder of Cain killing his brother Abel. And I think we can learn a lot about sin and indwelling sin and how it takes over us if we're not careful. We can learn about these things through the story of Cain and Abel. And I'd like to read that for us in our hearing today and draw a couple implications from it. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 8 say this. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Now Cain and Abel were descendants of Adam. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. His face was downcast. Now, what are we to learn from these first couple verses in this story? Because that leads into the next couple verses, of course. It says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering of the Lord. Because Cain was working in the soil. Nothing wrong with working in the soil. That was his job. That's what he did for a living. And Abel was working with the flocks. He was working with animals for a living. There's nothing wrong with working with animals. There's nothing wrong working with the soil. Different occupations. But it's how they responded and how they offered out of their occupations to the Lord that's when the problem came in. Okay? <clears throat> Abel brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. From some of the firstborn of his flock. Now notice the contrast in offerings that Abel and Cain bring here. It says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering, 
to the Lord. But Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn. The best portion of his flock. That's what Abel decided to offer to the Lord. But Cain, it seems like, he just brought some of the leftovers. He just brought some of the leftovers. He didn't bring the first fruits. He didn't bring the best fruits to offer to the Lord. He offered the things that maybe he didn't want so much. The fruit that he, maybe even the spoiled fruit that he did not want, spoiling his other fruit. That's what he offered to the Lord. Whereas Abel offered the firstborn, the best of the flock. And that's what we're called to do. We're, off, we're called to offer the best um, to the Lord. As soon as we get a paycheck, we're supposed to take out the first bit of that money and we're supposed to offer it to the Lord. We're not supposed to say, oh, I have money left over, then I will offer that money to the Lord. No, we give God the first fruits of our harvest, just like Abel did and Cain did not. Therefore, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. <laughs> now think about this, beloved. When we are courting somebody to marry, let's say you're a man looking for a potential spouse or a woman looking for a potential spouse, you'll spend all that you have to be able to show that person just how much you love them. You want to court them. You want to date them. You want to marry them. You'll spend all that you have. You'll spend so much time writing love letters to that person or sending nice text messages to that person or leaving nice voicemails for that person or putting notes on that person's door or locker or what have you. We spend so much time offering our best to these people that are fallible, they're imperfect, and they can never satisfy us, ultimately speaking. But yet we don't spend that amount of time investing into our offerings for God. That's the problem here. Cain, his priorities are messed up. He doesn't understand how worthwhile God is to be able to offer the first fruits of his harvest to him. And that's why he gets angry. Why are you angry, Cain? This is your fault, <laughs> essentially. That's what we're going to get into in the next verse. Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Probably because he was jealous of his brother. Probably he was jealous because of the favor that God looked upon his brother and did not look a favor upon him. Maybe he just wanted the blessing of God. He just wanted the favor of God, but he didn't actually want God himself as displayed by his offering. Because if you want God, you want to experience just him, you give him your best. But it seems as if Cain is jealous that he didn't receive the favor of God. Maybe that's what he's really jealous about. He wants God's gift and God's stuff rather than, than him actually wanting God. So Cain is very angry and his face is downcast. Verse 6 carries on. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? <laughs> why are you angry, Cain? This is your fault to begin with. Why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do what is right and offer the first fruits of your crop, Cain, will you not be accepted? Will you not receive my favor and my blessing and my grace and my smile upon your life? It's pretty easy. Complete A, and you will receive B. But if you don't complete A, you can't expect to receive B or anything else. Do your part. God will do his part. He wants to honor you. He wants to bless you. He wants to accept you. He wants to show you favor. You've got to cooperate with him. You have to act in faith. And he's not acting in faith here. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. We talked about last week, or two weeks ago, how the only way that you actually can rule over sin is by God's Spirit dwelling within you. And Cain doesn't sound like he's a believer here. He does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him in that sense, helping him to kill sin in that sense. Because as we're going to see in verse 8 here, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. He lures his brother out to the field. Where nobody can see him, he thinks. Maybe even God can't see me right now, he thinks. For what I'm about to do to my brother. Let's go out to the field, brother. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. He proved himself to be a child of the devil, like the book of 1 John says. He was not a man of faith. He was not indwelt by the Spirit of God. He did not love the things of God. And therefore, he killed his brother because he was jealous, he was angry, he was downcast, and he acted on sin. Now, did you catch something here? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching at your door. It wants to have you and to rule over you, it says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says that the devil is like a roaring lion. He's a prowling, roaring lion. And he looks for people to devour. That's why you should be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for people to devour. Sin and the devil, they're crouching at your door, Cain. But you must rule over him by the power of your spirit. You must overcome. You must tame your sin. Because when it is full grown, it will bring forth death. Like James chapter 1 says. When desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. When sin is fully grown, it will lead to death. It will bring forth death. Both temporally in this life and eternally in the next life. It will kill you. There's another thing that I'd like us to notice about this passage. Based off of the sin crouching at the door, do you notice how God says to Cain before he even commits the sin of murder against his brother? He says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And that makes me go, hmm. I don't really understand that verse. Because isn't the very nature of sin... Not doing what is right? Isn't that what it means to sin? Don't do what is right, and therefore you're sinning. But God makes a category here. He creates almost a distinction between these two things. Between not doing what is right, and wholeheartedly sinning. And transgressing against God. What is God getting at here? I think it's this. I think God is getting at this right here. There are things that are not right. Doing things that are not right. Such as maybe even offering a half-hearted sacrifice to God. There are things that are not right that are not necessarily sin. That are not necessarily sin. God creates a category between the two here. Now it doesn't say if Abel explicitly sinned by not bringing him the best offer. But it led to sin. Doing things that are not right can lead to sin. That's the point of the story. God was trying to correct Cain's heart before it led to worse and worse atrocities 
Because he knows that these things will lead to sin if you do not tame them. If you do not rule over them, Cain, you will be sinning. So when people say, well, is it a sin for me to be watching a movie late at night in the basement with my girlfriend while we have a blanket over our bodies? Is that a sin? Could be. It certainly is not right. It could lead to lust. It could lead to sin. It could lead to sexual immorality. But it's not right in and of itself. You should not be doing that. We're going to talk about that here in a second. Because it can lead to other sins. And we've got to be careful. We've got to rule over sin because it crouches at our door and it wants to have us. When we're angry and we get downcast, Satan, he's, he's on you. Your flesh is on you. It wants to consume you. If you're not getting enough sleep at night, okay, you're going to be more downcast, more angry in the morning or throughout the day. And Satan is going to be more on you. Your flesh is going to be more on you and willing to attack you and ready to attack you because you didn't go to bed last night. This is a full-blown war that we are fighting against our flesh, our sinful nature and tendencies. We've got to keep it at bay before it consumes us. We have to constantly be at the duty of killing sin, or it will be killing us. This is a day-to-day grind. Because things even that are not right, they can lead to sin. We've got to be extra careful. And we see this in the book of Genesis, one chapter earlier. The ancestors, <laughs> the relatives of Cain and Abel. When the woman saw, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see the very same thing happening. What happened to Cain and Abel happened to Adam and Eve. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, remember this is after the serpent tempted her, right? Got her to sin and got her to grab the apple. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Now notice something. This is where the not right comes into play here. Because she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In other words, the husband's not doing anything. He's just sitting there watching the serpent tempt his wife. And he's not stepping up as the leader of the household, as the man of the household, which what men are called to be in scripture. We're called to lead. Adam's not doing that. He's not doing what is right, and therefore, it leads to the first sin ever committed by mankind. And, and Adam just sits there and he says, okay, I'll eat some of that too. He doesn't take charge, and he's not doing what is right. The sins of omission are just as bad as the sins of commission. In other words, if, if you sit back and you don't do anything when you know the right thing to do, that's just as sinful as you doing the wrong thing. Like that one quote that says, all it takes for a country to crumble is for good people to not do the right thing. Good people to just sit back and do nothing. That's just as bad in a lot of ways as going out and doing the wrong thing. It's exactly what happened to Adam here in the garden. He was not doing what was right, and he knew the right thing to do. And it led to the first sin that was ever committed in mankind. But Adam might have just said, you know, I'm just taking a break. I'm just sitting on a lazy boy here. There's nothing wrong with me sitting down and chilling and... Let my wife do some of the talking here for once. After all, I've always got to do the talking. I've always got to do the leading. I deserve a, a break or a day off. And it's that kind of attitude that leads into the first sin ever committed by our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. 
talking about the not right things versus the explicit sinful things. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run the race marked out for us. Let's chase after Christ, in other words, the Bible is saying here. By throwing off the not right things, the things that hinder us, and let's throw off the sinful things. The things that will cause us to cause a breach in our relationship with God. So let's also not go into our basement with our girlfriend late at night where we have a towel or a blanket covering us. And let's also just not even commit lust or sexual immorality to begin with, period. Let's do neither of those things. Instead, let us run unhindered with no weights on us or on our ankles. Let us run the race marked out for us. And in order to do so, you've got to be able to not do the not right things and go out and kill your sin. You've got to do both in order to run wholeheartedly after our Lord and Savior. Now, I have a couple questions for you. Based off of what we just learned from Cain, from Abel, the not right things versus the outright sinful things. What sins are you most vulnerable to? What sins are you most vulnerable to? Is it lust, anger, uh, being angry, being prideful, being greedy, whatever it is. What sins are you most vulnerable to? Because for Abel, or excuse me, for Cain, it was being angry and downcast and sulking. That was his sin. What sins are you most vulnerable to? The second question is this. Where are you most vulnerable to these sins? Where are you most vulnerable to these sins? Is it when you're in the basement late at night? Is it when you're lying in your bed late at night? Scrolling through your phone when maybe you shouldn't be. And you should have put your phone away two hours ago and two hours past your bedtime. Where are you most vulnerable to sin? This is different for everybody, right? You know yourself. And you've got to be able to trace out the places where you have fallen into sin, where the devil has gotten you, and where your sin has jumped upon you. You've got to be able to know. Create a battle plan. Sit down and write down things on paper. Say, I'm not good after midnight. I sin more after midnight. I sin more when I'm laying down in my bed at a certain time of the day. Or I'm especially sinful or sulky when I get up and it's 8 o'clock in the morning and I don't want to leave my bed, but I know that I should. I know that I should. Because if I don't, I'll be falling into sin. You have to know these things. Pray, God, help me to know myself better. Help me to see my sin more clearly and to revere your holiness more fully so that I can hate my sin more. I can see you and I can see where I'm messing up. Because for the mature Christian, the more and more mature that you grow in Christ, paradoxically, the more that you realize how sinful you are. The more that you realize, gosh, I need help. I'm seeing sins that I didn't even know I was committing for the previous 20 years of my life. But I'm seeing them now, God. Thank you for allowing me to see them. But God, help me to attack them now. Help me to attack them. So know yourself. Evaluate yourself. The life unexamined is not worth living Examine yourself, know yourself, and fight against your sinful self. And finally, when are you most vulnerable to your sins? This is my last question. When are you most vulnerable to your sins? Like I said, is it a certain time of day, a certain time of night, when you're talking to a certain person, kind of grinds your gears in the wrong way, and you need to be extra prayed up when you go into meetings with this person or into conversations with this person? 
When are you most vulnerable to your sins? Create a battle plan and prayerfully attack it day in and day out. Like Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. But the counter to that is put yourself in a costume of Jesus. Put on Jesus. That's your identity. You're a Christian. You cannot separate yourself from your identity. So why are you trying to act against your identity? Act like the Christ that is within you. And you won't gratify your selfish desires. You will not only do the things that are sinful, but you'll also not even put yourself in situations that are conducive to sin. The not right things. Just like Abel committed. Just like not going into the basement right at night. You won't even do either of those things if you're constantly putting on Christ. To, to make a provision for your flesh is to provide for your flesh an opportunity to sin. That's what it means. If you've got a sketchy app that is installed within your phone, it's installed on your phone, you scroll across it every single day, that's a provision for your flesh. Because you're providing an opportunity for your sinful nature to have fun when you click on that emoji or that app icon. The best thing that you can do is delete it altogether and make no provision whatsoever for the flesh. Because your flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but your sinful flesh is weak. And when it's tempted, it will go back across that application and it will click on it. And it will indulge your revelry. So don't even give your flesh that opportunity. The more mature you become as a Christian, the more that you realize that the less self-control that you have. The more mature you are, the less self-control and the more help that you realize that you need. That's what mature holiness looks like. Maturity doesn't look like saying, okay, I'm going to go into this battle. I'm going to have enough self-control to be able to fight my way out of this battle, and then I won't sin. No, 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 no. True self-control looks like, for the mature Christian, you not even putting yourself in compromising situations to begin with. That's what true self-control looks like. That's what true godliness looks like. It recognizes that I will sin and I will mess up if I have even the slightest opportunity to do so. Therefore, true maturity says, I'm not even going to be anywhere near those situations. Like the psalmist says, I'm not even going to put myself on the pathways of the wicked. I'm not even going to walk with the ways of the wicked. I'm going to be so far away from those pathways, I'm going to be living in godliness. I'm going to be experiencing the presence and the blessedness of God and a relationship with Him over here. I'm not even going to get close to this pathway. There's no way. That's what true Christian maturity looks like. Make no provision for the flesh so that you won't gratify it, but instead, consume yourself with the things of Jesus Christ. Put on Christ every single day because that's what your identity is before God. When God sees you, He sees the blood of Christ. He sees the identity of Christ. He sees you as perfect. Because of Christ. Therefore, go out and act out your perfection that has already been obtained in the Lord's sight. Do that and you will live. And to cite our worship pastor here at the bridge, he said something very profoundly in his music and leadership podcast, which he just started, which is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I encourage you to go listen to it. It's phenomenal. He says this, Crushing today starts yesterday. <laughs> Crushing today starts yesterday. That's profound. That's profound. Because if you want to succeed against your flesh tomorrow and against the devil tomorrow, 
the battle plan today. That's how you succeed. If you want to beat the opponent on Saturday, you start scheming on Monday. You start practicing those plays throughout the entire week, right? But since this battle is every single day, you got to be armored up every single day. You have to put on the full armor of God every single day. That's what it's talking about. Put on Christ every single day, and you don't even worry about sin. You're only going to be consumed by the things of God. So crushing today starts yesterday. Winning today started yesterday. Winning today started by going to bed early last night so that you can be more capable of fighting your sin today. So thank you for that profound insight from our awesome worship leader, Matthew Willis. But, a final question for us before we close our lesson today. What if I get caught in a compromising situation? What if I get caught in a compromising situation? Either because this is self-inflicted, and I've put myself in a not right situation. It happens. Our flesh is weak at times. What if I put myself in that situation? Or what if I just get caught in that situation somehow? I've tried to not put myself in such compromising situations so that I can live a life that is above reproach, that is pleasing to God. But it just happens that you get caught up in a compromising situation. Well, the answer is this. Find a way out. Find a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says the following. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, you will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So that you can endure it. So when God does permit that you are te uh, to be tested, maybe this is even against your own will. You didn't ask for this testing or temptation, but God has permitted it to be in your life. If God puts you in that situation, he's always going to provide an exit sign for you to get out of such situation. That's his promise. That's a glorious promise. But it's also a very humbling promise because it says that whenever we do sin and whenever we do commit acts that are displeasing to Him, we always had a way out. We can't say that our situation led to our sinfulness. Nobody in the history of mankind has ever forced us to sin, no matter how adverse or difficult the circumstances are. We always sin because we want to. But God promises us. That when we are tested or when we are tempted, he will always provide an exit sign or a way out. He always will. Even if it's a dark exit sign in a dark movie theater, you will always be able to see it. You will always be able to find the proper exit door. And I remember when I worked at a summer camp counselor at Canicook for three summers, one of the camp directors who was married, he had to get a ride home from another female who was working on staff at Canicook because he didn't have a ride, and his wife was out of town or whatnot. I forgot the situation. But, anyways, this woman had to give him a ride home late at night. And he knew that this was a compromising situation. And this was a mature man of God who realized that he did not have the correct amount of self-control necessary. And even if he did have that self-control, he doesn't even want to fight against it. He doesn't want to make that provision for his flesh. So what did he do? Well, when he was in the car driving with this woman back to his house, he called his wife and put the phone down and put her on speakerphone right next to the armrest in the car. And he left her on speakerphone for the 20 or 30 minutes that it took for them to get home. Because he wanted to be above reproach. He did not want to be caught in a situation that was not right, even if it was against his will. 
And he wanted to please God and to kill sin and not even leave an opportunity for his sin to take place. He wanted to leave sin at the door, crouching there. And not only that, he wanted to be on the offensive against that sin. He wanted to go outside and he wanted to kill that sin with a sword. And he did so. And it's people like that that I look up to. And I pray that whoever's watching this video right now can be that type of person who doesn't leave it to chance, who kills sin before he even has an opportunity to take root in their heart, like it did in Abel. And it led to an atrocious sin. So kill sin right now before it even has an opportunity to get into your house. Leave it at the door. And even so, as we're going to talk about next week, go outside and attack it at your doorstep. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today and for the story of Cain and Abel, as difficult as it is. Thank you for the lessons that it teaches us. God, may we be like Abel and not like Cain. May we not allow our sin to consume us, but may we go out and may we attack it like my camp director did at Cannacook. May we always be at killing our sin. May we always be tracing the serpent and finding out its ways and finding out where we are sinful and where we are most often tempted and where we are most often tempted and when we are most often tempted and to what sins we are most often tempted to. Father, give us wisdom in these matters and give us the self-control to recognize that we do not have self-control. That is true self-control. So I also pray for humility on top of that, God. Give us the humility to recognize that we need your help and we need your grace. We praise you today. We have access to it through Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we praise you.